This might surprise you, but there is no explicit condemnation of suicide in the Bible. Look for it. You're not going to find a single explicit, clearly articulated commandment in some thundering voice from on high proclaiming, Thou shalt not commit suicide. No, the scriptures did not explicitly and formally declare suicide to be against the law of God. And this is according to Father Robert Berry, he's a Dominican, from this really important article from 2012 in the Notre Dame Journal of Law, Ethics, and Public Policy. It's called The Development of Roman Catholic Teachings on Suicide. It's an excellent article. I recommend it if you want to dive into this. But Father Barry said that in spite of the absence of a very specific denunciation of suicide, the Bible only allowed killing for self-defense or for the punishment of an individual for a clear, certain, and serious breach of the law. So let's take a quick look at this. Where do we see implicit evidence against the moral legitimacy of suicide? Well, let's start in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. That reads as follows. He who sheds man's blood shall have his blood shed by man. For in the image of God, man was made. Now, there's no exclusion in this Genesis 9 passage for shedding one's own blood. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Deuteronomy. This is 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And a little earlier in that, in that same letter, St. Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Notice that if anyone destroys God's temple and what is God's temple? God's temple is not just us. It's specifically our bodies. And then finally, one that I, that I think is really important, Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, so all of these passages, and there's many more that people cite that are implicit evidence in Scripture against suicide, but we can also look to the examples from scriptures. And in summarizing these, a father, Robert Barry, said, The scriptures did portray those who killed themselves without God's authority to be alienated from the life and holiness of God. And in just a moment, we will be getting into the stories of all the major figures in scripture who did die by their own hand.
Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. Thank you for being here with me. I am a Catholic man. I am a Catholic man passionate about the Catholic faith. That's first and foremost. I also happen to be a clinical psychologist. I'm Dr. Peter Malinowski. I am honored that you are listening in. I value your time. I won't waste it. The whole reason that this podcast exists is to help you toward loving union with God. That's it. It's about removing the psychological barriers you have to a much deeper intimacy with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother. In the last episode, we looked at secular approaches to understanding suicide. Today, in this episode, number 77, released on July 19th, 2021, we are getting into suicide in the Bible. We are taking a deep dive into the stories of people who died by their own hand. This episode, Suicide in the Sacred Scriptures. Let's start at the very beginning. The first recorded suicide. Some people say the first recorded suicide in the history of humankind. The first recording. 13th century BC. And this is the story of Abimelech. Now, who was Abimelech? Abimelech was the son of Gideon. You remember Gideon, right? He was the judge. He was the great Israelite military leader. He was the one that triumphed over the Midianites in chapters 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Judges. Now, Abimelech's mother was one of Gideon's concubines. Abimelech had 71 half-brothers. These were the sons of Gideon and his wives. But remember, Abimelech was the son of a concubine. That puts him in a half-brother status, right? He was ambitious. He lacked a moral compass. He wanted power. But if you are the son of a concubine and you have 71 half-brothers who are of your father's wives, that puts you at number 72 in the line of succession, right? So what are you going to do? If you, if you really want to grab power, what do you have to do? Well, what Abimelech did was to murder 70 of his 71 half-brothers. He did this in cold blood. There was no mention of him seeking God's will. He wanted to become king. And so, because his mother was, even though she was a concubine, she was a real power broker in Shechem. That's where she was from. He and his mother were able to convince the leading citizens of Shechem to appoint him king. So, he's not really a king. He's kind of like a proto-king. He's not a king crowned by God. Rather, he's an usurper who was seized power by his own hand in this bloody fratricide. Right. And now, at this point, he's not content with just ruling Shechem. He wanted to rule over all of Israel. His rule over Shechem was brutal. Abimelech ruled by force. He did not hesitate to murder those who opposed him. His rule was also short, only three years before the citizens of Shechem revolted against him for all his abuses. Shechem's leader roused up the people of Gaal to fight against Abimelech, but Abimelech was able to find this out and he set an ambush for them and defeated them. 
And in retribution, Abimelech attacked his own subjects. He attacked the people of Shechem indiscriminately, recaptured the city, killed its inhabitants, tore down the walls, and in a final act, he salted their fields to render them infertile for years. But the leaders of Shechem escaped, and they headed to the temple of El Barith, hiding in the tunnel underneath it. But word travels. Abimelech found out, and with his army, he piled wood on top of the tunnel, and he incinerated about a thousand men and women to death inside. No hesitation from Abimelech on harming, killing innocent noncombatants. And then, it's not clear why, but Abimelech went on to the city of Thebes, and he made war on the city, and he captured that city. And the people fled to the tower in the town, and they locked themselves in it. Abimelech went to the entrance, and he made preparations to burn it down. Now, people knew what Abimelech was like. He, f- he started his rule by murdering 71 half-brothers. He shows that he has no regard for the lives of his subjects or for his neighbors. Everybody's a combatant now. And a woman at the top of the tower on the roof threw down a small millstone hoping to hit Abimelech. And she was dead on. It struck him in the head, cracked his skull. And he realized that he was now in danger of dying. He called to his armor bearer and said, kill me. Run me through. And why did he do that? Because he did not want to endure the shame of it being said of him posthumously that Abimelech was killed by a woman. The armor bearer took his sword and killed Abimelech. That is the first recorded instance of a suicide in the scriptures. Just take a look at this now. right? You can see how often in scripture... Suicide is linked to homicide, right? Let's go back to that first passage that we cited, Genesis 9, 6. He who sheds man's blood shall have his blood shed by man. So we see that a man who had no hesitation about killing hundreds of women, women who were his subjects, women for whom he had a responsibility, was killed by a woman. All right, well, let's move on. Let's move on to the story of Saul, right? So we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years. Saul was born in the 11th century BC. And at that time in Israel, there was a lot of danger. Israel was surrounded by warring, hostile nations. And Samuel, the great prophet, the great judge, was now very, very old. Sometime before, he had passed the reins of government to his sons, but his sons mismanaged the affairs of the nation and were incompetent and corrupt. The Israelites were pressing Samuel to choose a king to rule over them like other nations had. Give us a king, they cried. Samuel resisted. He knew that God had chosen this particular form of theocratic rule by judges. He knew that the demand for a king was an offense against God. But God intervened and said to Samuel, if the people want a king, give them a king. Samuel prophesied of the evils that a king would bring, of the burdens that a king would place on the people. The people shouted that they wanted a king anyway. 
So all as all this was going on, Saul, who was not really a party to any of this, was out hunting for his father's strayed donkeys. He was young. He was looking for the donkeys. He noticed that he was in the region of Samuel, and he thought, hey, maybe the prophet knows where the donkeys went, right? I mean, yes, prophets are to speak with the mouth of God, but they may also have like, you know, pretty useful information when it comes to looking for donkeys that have run away from home. So he decides he's going to go and talk to Samuel. Samuel then informs Saul that he is God's choice to be the first king of Israel. Oh, okay. Saul's going to be the king of Israel. Saul starts out by being pretty low-key in his rule. He's far from heavy-handed, and he defeats the Ammonites. He frees the city of Jabez-Galad, and he banishes all the magicians and the mediums and the wizards from the land. So he starts off pretty well, but then he starts making bad decisions. He's at war with the Philistines, which was very common back in those days, and in a desperate act, he usurps the role of the priest and prophet Samuel by offering a sacrifice himself. This was a huge mistake. Samuel wasn't there at the time. He didn't have a priest. He didn't have a prophet. So Saul decides that he is going to step into the role of priest and prophet. Big mistake. Samuel arrives, he rebukes him, and he announces the end of Saul's kingdom. That's in 1 Samuel 13. Saul also refuses God's command to destroy the tribe of Amalek. And this compounds his disobedience. So he is failing to carry out the commands of God in a number of different ways. What happens next? God then commands Samuel to anoint the boy David to be king after the Lord's own heart. David is a mere shepherd boy at the time, and we discuss this in detail in episode 42. As you probably know, a major rivalry developed between Saul and David. Saul is jealous. He persecutes David. David's favored by God. Saul is feeling threatened and inferior. Saul has killed thousands. David, 10,000, sing the Israelite women. David was the one who killed Goliath. And even when Saul tried to help and have a small part in that by offering David his armor, David did it without it. The Philistines now, they're invading again. And scripture says that Saul is, begin quote, absolutely terrified, end quote. His heart trembled greatly. So let's, let's go to the scripture and actually see what the word of God has to say about this whole situation back in the 11th century BC. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Sometimes that's referred to as the witch of Endor. But a medium is probably a better translation because a medium is somebody who channels the spirits of the dead. So remember, Saul had banished all the mediums and wizards and, and, and magicians from the land. Now he's actually seeking them out. He wants to use the occult practices 
to channel the spirit of the dead. He's looking for supernatural help in his desperation, in his fear of the Philistines. All right, so let's pick it up with verse 8 of 1 Samuel 28. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the wizards from the land. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? She's frightened. She does not want to be identified as somebody who will practice this channeling the spirits of the dead. She knows that if she is caught, that her life is on the line. All right, verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So Paul is actually swearing by the living God at this point. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out in a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, have no fear. What do you see? So this is, this is really creepy. Samuel had died and Saul really wanted to connect with him. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man coming up for he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. So let's look at this. The woman can actually channel the dead. She is actually a medium using dark forces, using the occult to bring up the spirit of Samuel. Now, of course, God is cooperating with this. If he was not in his divine will to allow these occult powers to work, he wouldn't, they wouldn't work, but he's allowing it to happen. And, and, and Saul is digging himself into a deeper and deeper pit, more and more opposed to the will of God, right? Because this kind of divination is expressly forbidden at many points in the old Testament and Saul knew it. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Well, how about that for some prophesying, right? So what Samuel has said is that you're going to be dead tomorrow. The Philistines are going to kill you tomorrow. So Saul fell at once full length upon the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your handmaid has hearkened to you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have hearkened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, you also hearken to your handmaid. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you might have strength when you go on your way. So, 
the medium takes care of Saul. She feeds him. And the next day, the Philistines attacked Israel. And the men of Israel fled before them, and many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. So he's been hit with arrows, and his beloved sons are dead. The brave Jonathan is dead. Three sons, the ones that would have taken over the kingship, are now dead. Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But the scripture says, his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. Remember, Saul was God's anointed king and the armor bearer knows you do not kill God's anointed one. So what did Saul do? So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together the same day. And when the Israelites in the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. And there's a little more to the story. You can read it. It's all at the end of 1 Samuel. The Philistines desecrate Saul's corpse. They hang his armor up. And there's a, there's a divine punishment here. Father Barry says, quote, Saul was specifically anointed by Yahweh to be the great king and unifier of the chosen people. But he betrayed his mission by falling into sorcery, idolatry, and witchcraft. For this, he slowly became entangled by the snares of sin, infidelity, and death until he was so deeply enmeshed that he could not escape. The depth of his involvement was confirmed by his self-killing. His life and actions were in sharp contrast to the scriptural idea of the God-fearing Israelite who lived out the full length of his days and saw his children's children down to the seventh generation. So again, this is another example of suicide being the end of a life that was not committed to God, that was called to greatness by God, who was anointed by God, but did not live out those divine commands. I'm going to tell you one more story, the story of Ahithophel. So now we're just a few years later. We're now in the 10th century BC and Ahithophel, sometimes Ahithophel, he was a counselor of King David. He was, in a, he was known to be a very wise man, a sage. People consulted him. So he was David's closest counselor. Now remember, Absalom revolted and rebelled against his father David. And when that happened, Ahitophel supported Absalom. Now Absalom had sought the advice of Ahitophel. And Ahitophel advised Absalom to have incestuous relationships with his father's concubines in order to show to all of Israel how odious he was to his father. There was this real power struggle. That was a, that was a tremendous insult for a son to have sexual relations with his father's concubine. And Ahitophel, he recommended an immediate attack on David's camp 
at a point when David's soldiers were weary and vulnerable. He was trying to kill David. So now we have the situation of a trusted counselor of David being the turncoat, being a traitor, supporting a rebel son, Absalom. Absalom does not heed Ahitophel's advice to attack David when he's weak. Instead, he takes Hushai's advice, and Ahitophel realized that the writing was on the wall. He realized that that Absalom's revolt would fail. So he returned to his native place, Gilo, and after arranging some affairs, he hanged himself. Okay, so it's interesting. If you do a little backstory reading on this, there's a man named Ahitophel in 2 Samuel 23, 34, who is said to be the father of Eliam. Eliam was one of David's 30 warriors. Now, Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. Remember Bathsheba? She was the one who David fell in love with, that he became infatuated with. She was married to Uriah, to Uriah at the time. David had Uriah killed. So Ahitophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And so Ahitophel may have had a real axe to grind, may have had a real desire for vengeance because of David's mistreatment of Bathsheba, because of his killing of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So that's just an interesting set of relationships to take a look at. Let's take a look at some other suicides. There's debate over whether Samson considered suicide. It depends a little bit on definitional issues. Um, Again, this was in the 12th century BC. Uh, Father Barry says that the story of Samson is one of an amoral giant with an uncontrollable anger and lust who waged a war of private revenge against the Philistines. You can read about this in Judges 16. There was little religious aura around Samson. He, he wasn't a particularly religious or faithful guy, but he was the only one of his time that could give the Israelites any kind of confidence that they could take on the Philistines. But the thing was, is that Samson always worked alone. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't a strategist. He just relied on his superhuman physical strength. In fact, he was rather, rather unintelligent, rather bullheaded. Now, both St. Augustine and St. Aquinas argue that Samson's, if it was a suicide, was morally valid because it was done under the command of God. Remember that Samson, after he had been captured, after he had succumbed to the temptations of Delilah and told her the secret of his strength and she cut his hair off, he was imprisoned, he was blinded, he was imprisoned, and he was brought out for show to be ridiculed, to be made fun of, and brought to the center of the Philistines building, their huge building, where there were two main support columns. And he, because his strength had been returned, he pulled those columns down, leading to the deaths of thousands of Philistines. I don't believe that Samson's goal was to kill himself. I don't think that that was the point. His goal was to kill Philistines in large numbers out of revenge. In fact, that's what he prayed for. He prayed that God would grant him strength so that he could take revenge on the Philistines. So there's really some question about whether that was his intent. I mean, theoretically, possibly he could have survived. The likelihood was low given where he was positioned, but there is that possibility. Who else do we have? Well, we have Zimri. 
Zimri was a military officer. He was a commander of chariots under King Ella of Israel. And Zimri assassinated Ella's entire family, sparing no one. He wanted to eliminate not only the king, but to eradicate all the king's heirs. He didn't want any potential rivals. And his reign lasted seven days. And why was that? Well, because the Israelite army never accepted Zimri as king. Another more senior military commander, Omri, took rapid action. He attacked Zimri before Zimri had time to consolidate his defenses. He besieged Zimri and Tezra, and Zimri lit the palace on fire and immolated himself in the flames. So he died by burning himself to death. What about Razis? Now, this is really an interesting case. This was in 2 Maccabees in chapter 14. Razis was a temple high priest. And Nicanor the Greek was coming to destroy Judaism and the Jews. He wanted to capture Razis. He wanted to make an example of Razis. He wanted to brutalize Razis. And rather than suffer capture, Razis tried to impale himself on his sword. But he missed. He missed the stroke. And so failing that, he threw himself off a tower. Now, of all the suicides in the Bible, this one alone seemed to be approved because it showed an unswerving fidelity to the law. And in his analysis of this, Father Robert Barry, the Dominican, says that the death of Razis was tolerable not because it was suicidal, but because it was seen as the last and only available means of protecting the Jewish faith from dishonor. And the general consensus was that this was a seen as a death commanded by God. Somewhat like Samson's, again, Augustine and Aquinas believe that Samson was commanded to do what he did. They believe that Razis was also commanded to do what he did. Now, it's also interesting to note that there were a number of people who were tempted to, to suicide, but they didn't do it. This includes Jonah. It includes Elijah in 1 Kings 19, verses 4 to 10. This includes Tobit and Sarah, right? So there's greater merit, and of course, who can forget Job, right, who bore his sufferings patiently, seven years of suffering patiently, all kinds of suffering, he bore it patiently and well. And then, of course, that brings us to Judas Iscariot. Now, I discuss Judas, the case of Judas, at length in episode 46. I talk about tragedy in Judas's life. The most tragic figure in all of human history, I believe, is Judas. And Father Barry argues that the suicide of Judas Iscariot illustrates the New Testament's critical view of suicide. For he committed suicide in imitation of Ahithophel and apparently was Ahithophel's New Testament counterpart. It's an interesting thing. A lot of commentators believe that Judas parallels Ahithophel. Ahithophel is a kind of anti-type of Judas. By committing suicide just prior to the death of Jesus, Judas ironically proclaimed Jesus to be in the line of Davidic kingship, just as the suicide of Ahithophel ironically proclaimed the kingship of David. There's all these ways that these are interlinked, and Father Barry is pointing those out really, really beautiful. Really, really beautifully. Judas was chosen as an apostle, and thus he came close to Jesus. But Judas betrayed Jesus, selling him for 30 pieces of silver. 
Father Barry says that Judas's betrayal and subsequent suicide gave a new emphasis to the utter gravity of his abandonment of the apostolic call. His suicide was a sign of the total destruction of the life of God in him and his complete immersion in death. Rather than being heralded as one of the cornerstones of the church, as were all the other apostles, Judas was reduced to shame. And Father Barry makes this point. He says, if you look at how frequently Judas was denounced, how frequently he was rejected, this shows the horror that early Christians had for Judas. Judas was rejected by the people of his own town. He was rejected by the people, by the leaders of his own nation. He was rejected by his fellow disciples. And in St. John's Gospel, he was referred to as Dialobos, which means that he was the adversary or the informer. So Judas is portrayed as being so perverse that all of his actions were twisted. They were perverted, right? He was the example of what happens to the nth degree if you abandon the love of God, if you pursue your own designs. He was the treacherous apostate and his suicide signified that despairing apostates such as he would be utterly cut off from salvation. His infidelity stands in stark contrast to the loyalty of Jesus and Job who were able to maintain fidelity even in the midst of great suffering and trial. Judas, on the other hand, was the complete antithesis of obedience and devotion. Now, in the last 50 years, there have been all kinds of efforts to rehabilitate Judas. I talked about in episode 46 how in Jesus Christ Superstar, for example, there's a real effort to kind of rehabilitate Judas. And I can understand that. I mean, I can understand how there is sympathy for people who really suffer. But we also have to bear in mind that in suicide, there is a victim who is the person who dies of suicide, but that that person is also the perpetrator. We're going to talk a lot more about the church's teaching on suicide in the next episode and how balanced and nuanced it is. And we're also going to discuss how that harmonizes and doesn't harmonize with secular understandings of, of suicide. But I've got one more scriptural passage that I want to go through with you. I think it's really important. And this is in the Acts of the Apostles. This is the story of St. Paul and, and St. Silas and the jailer in Philippi. This all takes place in chapter 16 of the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to pick it up with verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by, by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owner realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, so high stakes here. The jailer was under the direct command of the magistrates to make sure that these two, Paul and Silas, are securely kept. Specific command to guard Paul and Silas carefully. Right, And so he was taking no chances. Not only were they put in the most secure cell, they were also shackled. So we'll pick it up with verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Okay, so the jailer wakes up. He sees the doors of the jail wide open. He sees himself dishonored and soon to be confronting the wrath of the magistrates, the wrath of the authorities. He's about to kill himself to avoid the shame and dishonor. And to his amazement, Paul is still in the jail. Paul is still in the jail. Silas is still in the jail. And not only that, Paul has influenced all the other prisoners not to leave. Remember, they were listening to the hymns. They were listening to what Paul and Silas were saying, what they were watching, what they were doing. And even though the doors flew open, the chains fell off, all the prisoners are staying put. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. So verse 29, the jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Okay. Wow. The jailer is no longer afraid of reprisals and consequences, right? Concerned about keeping all of the prisoners in, now he invites Paul and Silas, these condemned men, to his own house. He bathes their wounds. He feeds them from his own larder. No jailhouse rations now, but the best from the jailer's stores. And despite the pain of their wounds, and despite the fact that we are now into the wee hours of the morning, it's catechesis time. And then after that, the jailer and his whole household are baptized. They're brought into the Christian community. They are made part of the mystical body of Christ. An interesting little fact, Ammonius, he was a Christian philosopher that lived in the third century. He was born a Christian and he remained faithful to Christianity all his life. He wrote a lot of scholarly articles and books. He insists 
that the jailer was the Stephen whom Paul mentions in his first letter to the Corinthians, right? So looks like this guy had a career, like as a Christian, like he grew to the point where Paul honors and mentions him in that first letter to the Corinthians. St. John Chrysostom said the light in the jailer's heart was bright. He was moved. He rushed in and fell before them. He didn't ask How did this happen? He didn't ask what happened. Instead, right away, recognizing the authority of Paul and Silas, the God-given authority of Paul and Silas, he says, what must I do to be saved? He knew that those two, Paul and Silas, had the words of salvation. He wanted to know the answers. He had gone through this totally revolutionary experience inside, a theophany, if you will. He invites them to his house. St. John Chrysostom says that the jailer washed Paul and Silas and that the jailer was then washed by the waters of baptism. His sins were washed away. He fed Paul and Silas and he was fed on the word of God. And he rejoiced. This was a sign that he believed, that he was released from everything. The jailer accepted the love of God into his heart. Now, this passage, according to Father Barry, it shows the emptiness of claims that the New Testament does not condemn suicide. In a situation in which suicide would seem to be justifiable, a leading Christian apostle vigorously denounced self-killing and instead used a potentially tragic situation to call the jailer to faith. There was a 180-degree turn on this from the despair to great hope for this jailer. And Father Barry says that this scene is important for Christian teaching on suicide because it shows that the apostolic verdict was clearly against suicide. Standing second only to Peter, the apostle of the Gentiles issued a thundering condemnation of self-killing and called for faith in the place of despair. In the earliest years of the Christian community, Paul made the Christian view of suicide quite clear. Faith in Christ delivers from death, and suicide is not acceptable for anyone, even the non-Christian. And you see this echoed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2280, which reads as follows, Everyone is responsible for his life before God who has given it to him. It is God who remains the sovereign master of life. We are obliged to accept life gratefully and preserve it for his honor and the salvation of our souls. We are stewards, not owners of the life God has entrusted to us. It is not ours to dispose of. Pope St. John Paul II talked about how we live in a culture of death. Assisted suicide abortion, euthanasia, disrespect for the life given to us. We're going to get more deeply into the church's positive teaching about suicide. And we're going to do it in a way that's also sensitive to the trials that people who are desperate are going, are going through. Because we don't want to deny that reality. There have been times where There can be very harsh and and I think unjust condemnations of individuals who have committed suicide. Remember, we are not able to judge anyone's soul. We can say that the act of suicide 
is really problematic. We can say that it's morally wrong. We can talk about how it's grave matter. But there can be all kinds of mitigating factors that impact the moral culpability of the one who commits suicide, of the one who kills himself or herself. So we're going to look at this in greater detail in our next in our next podcast episode. But I do want to say that if you're having suicidal thoughts or if you know of someone who is, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. That's for support and assistance. They have trained counselors on that line 24-7. If you or a loved one are in immediate danger, do not hesitate. Call 911. There's also at soulsandhearts.com a Catholic's Guide to Helping a Loved One in Distress. Now, that's not something to consult if you're in an active situation where suicide is imminent, but it's got great tips. It's a free course, a video course called A Catholic's Guide to Helping a Loved One in Distress. We just give that away because we really want to help people be equipped to reach out in loving and attuned ways to another person. And so really recommend that you check that out. We also have a directory of topics from addictions to vocational discernment. It's There's a whole table of contents. We've got almost all the letters of the alphabet, topics on all of the letters of the alphabet. If you go to soulsandhearts.com backslash T-O-C, which stands for table of contents, you will see all of our Souls and Hearts resources organized by category for quick reference. So if you want something on depression or if you want something on anxiety or you want something on, you know, on scrupulosity, there's all kinds of categories there that you can find resources to help you with because that's what Souls and Hearts is all about. It's about it's our online outreach to help people overcome psychological obstacles that keep them from fully being able to tolerate being loved and to love others and to love God. If you are a Catholic therapist or if you're a grad student that's studying to become a therapist or a counselor, check out the Interior Therapist Community. This community is all about the human formation of Catholic therapists. It's all about Catholic therapists doing their own internal work. And we use internal family systems informed approaches. And it might be the time to join 55 other Catholic therapists who are really looking at themselves as instruments of God. How can we as Catholic therapists really overcome our own obstacles, right? And that is specifically also oriented toward us becoming better therapists through through better human formation. Remember, we have conversation hours. Those are Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. My cell number, 317-567-9594. But they will not happen on July 27 or July 29, 2021. I am taking those two days off. I have guests, so I will not be having those at the end of the month. But all the other Tuesdays and Thursdays in July and August, I will be available. And finally, please pray for me. Please pray for your fellow listeners to this podcast. This whole is supported by prayer, so I appreciate that. And with that, we will invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.